Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. In the second episode of Land Ethic, I spoke with Darren Farmer D. Jaffe. Darren is a self-proclaimed entrepreneur. He's created a career based off of encouraging people to connect with their food source by becoming citizen farmers. We talked about his career path, agrihood developments, and he had some really interesting insight on the role of spirituality and mysticism in agriculture. Check out his book and his podcast, both called Citizen Farmers, and enjoy our conversation. Darren Jaffe, thank you for joining me. Really oh, appreciate my pleasure. it. Uh, I've been aware of you for some time. I uh, actually heard of you through Landscape Architecture, which I want to talk about a little bit. But I think I heard of you from Matt Whitaker in um, Chattanooga, who was aware of your work at Serenby, and they recommended checking you out. And uh, so I did. Really fascinated by some of the things you're doing. I bought your book. So up front, I just kind of want to get an overview of your career your winding path, it seems, to where you are now and um, and what you've got going on now. Nice. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, the, uh, you know, my, my journey has been, um, I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family, uh, kind of a couple of generations deep of entrepreneurs. In fact, my, my, both of my grandparents, my grandfathers were in uh, agriculturally related enterprises. One started a bakery, another a rice business in South Africa. So we've got like entrepreneurship runs through my veins. Um, I started a car wash in my parents' uh, sheepskin seat cover store when I was in <laughs> middle school. Got my first real um, taste of business. The car wash did really well. It's still running today, 40 something, what is it, 30 years later. Wow. And, um, but I decided car wash, car washing was not my calling. Um, and I got, you know, I got interested in, gardening initially um, and farming eventually really through kind of some influences that I had in high school um, and freshman year of college, part of which was traveling around to Grateful Dead shows uh, and being kind of exposed to the, the kind of hippie culture and organic food and healthy food and kind of plant medicine and conscious living. Um, which kind of led me into like kind of the back to earth movement stuff and just appreciating some of the sustainability work that had been, and, and, and kind of social justice work that had been done. And then I got, I went to Israel high school for a semester and connected with kind of my, my Jewish roots and realized there's a lot of agricultural connections there. And mm-hmm. Israel is a really fascinating place for agriculture and community. And so I started just getting curious um, around some of these influences. And when I was in college in Madison, Wisconsin, I did an apprenticeship on an organic farm my fresh, summer of freshman year after going to a biodynamic uh, farming workshop at the Michael Fields Institute one weekend. And I just became fascinated 
by growing about, you know, I had a garden at my house that, that year in college and that summer and worked on this organic farm. And I fell down the rabbit hole, man. I was like, this is it. You know, I became really passionate about issues around um, agriculture, the environment, health, um, the plight of the small family farmer. Um, and I just, I just started reading a lot of Wendell Berry and Gene Logsdon and um, Steiner, uh, the biodynamic lectures. And I just started really getting, I was actually, it was the first time I got really passionate about learning and from kind of failing, I was like kind of failing out of college because I was so not interested in the coursework. I've been there, um, brother. <laughs> but I was, I was, you know, excelling in this other environment, um, you know, learning from doing and apprenticing and getting my hands dirty and voraciously reading and going to conferences. And um, that was the most exhilarating and enriching part of my life was when I first started to tap into this energy that you get, you know, when you're connected to the land and growing food and feeding people and doing it in a way that's really modeling a better way for us to, um, just a more sustainable food system, you know? Yeah. So anyway, so that was my start. And then from there, you know, the, the long story short is I did a few apprenticeships. My second big apprenticeship was with Hugh Lovell who passed away this year, a biodynamic farmer out of North Georgia. And um, I went deep into biodynamics with Hugh and I was really inspired by his farm as it was a real closed loop farm with animals and compost and growing feed for the animals and all kinds of amazing um, vegetables and herbs and value added, you know, we were doing rice and sourdough and pickles and cheese and raw milk dairy and the whole thing. So I kind of took that inspiration and experience and carried it onto my own farm. Um, I cashed in my bar mitzvah money <laughs> and uh, bought, bought 173 acres in southwest Wisconsin when I was about 20. And I ran a biodynamic CSA farm there. Is that like the Driftless region? Yeah, the Driftless region Beautiful. near Viroqua, Reedstown. Wow. Yeah, it's a nice area. Nice community, too, of, of um, supportive elder farmers that, are, you know, the Organic Valley folks and yeah. For listeners, that was really my uh, where the glacial retreat um, did not completely flatten everything. So there's still some some hill country out there. It's so beautiful. The hills and valleys of southwest Wisconsin and the, the old the, the Crooked River, um, the Kickapoo. And um, the, there's just it's a beautiful area, really fertile. And I think one of the things that really drew me there um, and I felt I feel lucky I got my start there in a way is that there's a there you know during the 60s and 70s a lot of a lot of homesteaders settled out there there's a bunch of small food co-ops and you know the organic valley cooperative started six miles from where my farm was so there was a a culture and a community that was really supportive mm. of new farmers beginning farmers so i had a great network there that helped me as i got established um and then basically the long story short is i realized after a few years of running a diversified biodynamic csa farm that and I was driving two hours into Madison to sell my most of my what I grew at the farmers market and CSA and the restaurants is that this was not the right model for me. I felt like somehow I needed to be closer. Like, you know, keep in mind, I was in, I was my, all my friends were like sophomores and juniors in college at this point. Oh, wow. And so 
I was just disconnected from that community far away, two hours away. And, and I just felt like this, the whole idea of pushing farms far away from where people are is not the right model. It's like, how do you put the farm where the people are so that you can engage people in agriculture that, you know, I could be engaged with community. And so anyway, so long, you know, long story short, I ended up having this idea of like, how can I bring the farm to the people? How can I put the farm in the middle of town, you know? Um, and that started me on an interesting journey and two things happened. Um, one is I, uh, I moved back into Madison. I kept the farm, but I moved back into Madison. I bought a food truck, a falafel cart and a, and I bought a pizza business. So I had a farm to table food truck in uh, downtown Madison and I was looking for land. I was looking for a place to bring the farm closer to the city. And Ironically, I found that in a in the Jewish community center had just been donated 170 acres right outside of Madison. And I had had a recent epiphany personally about kind of reconnecting to my Jewish roots and realizing, man, why was there no farm at Jewish summer camp? Like, how come I never learned about farming through a Jewish lens growing up? Yeah. Like, it's such a big part of Judaism, but I never, that never was part of my Jewish upbringing. So I had this idea and I pitched it to bring a, a farm to the Jewish summer camp that I went to growing up, which ironically, yesterday, I registered my son for first time he's going to overnight summer camp. And I managed to barter some of my tuition to help them redo the garden and farm there that I started almost 20 <laughs> years ago. Um, so I ended up starting a nonprofit um, doing gardens and farms and Jewish uh, summer camps and community centers all over the country, which is work I still do today, 20 years later. But, um, but I also, um, at that time, around that time, I, I got involved in a campus initiative um, group called FH King Sustainable Ag Club on campus. And I had, I had dropped out of school because there was no program to study biodynamic farming, sustainable ag. Um, and so a group of students had started a club to try to figure out how to incorporate that. So anyway, so I ended up volunteering with them, helping them set up a demonstration farm. And we brought in a speaker, um, a Mohammed Nuru from San Francisco, uh, from the San Francisco League of Urban Gardeners, SLUG. And he ended up recruiting me out to San Francisco to run a farm in a youth prison and help build a composting program for SLUG. So I sold the farm, I sold the falafel cart, I moved to California. And I was really inspired by the model that Slug had for using agriculture and landscaping and value-added uh, food products as a way to help people who were um, in more vo in vulnerable, you know, impoverished communities, people that were coming off of welfare, coming out of prison, dropping out of high school. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I was really passionate about, the social justice side. And so I did that for a while. I ran a farm in a youth prison and I worked for the nonprofit and Mohammed was a landscape architect and that's how he got into the work. And he inspired me to go back to school for landscape architecture, which is where I think you and I kind of overlap. Yeah, there it is. I, uh, I didn't know a lot of this. I, I knew in the book, you kind of glossed over some of the, uh, I, I see why it's a long and winding path here, but I, which I love, I love the hearing the background, but uh, I didn't realize you, you had farmed in so many different distinct um, ecosystem, you know, areas of the country. That's really cool. Oh yeah. And since, since then I can list off a whole bunch of places. That's <laughs> oh, we're going to get into the, that. Yeah. Anyway, so that pretty much wrapped that up. I, I ended up, um, 
being it going to going in the landscape architecture program at University of Georgia, um, what moved back, you know, where my family to be closer to my family. And after a year, um, I got hired by a professor, actually an agroecology press professor to start a farm um, just off campus, six miles from campus. Um, and I did that, lived on the farm and commuted by electric bicycle to campus and studied landscape architecture and was farming. And then I got this, uh, that grant, this grant, the Joshua Venture Fellowship to scale up the Jewish nonprofit work. So I was, oh no, what am I going to do? Like, I can't do all of it. So I went to the dean, um, Jack Crowley. Ironically, I just got invited to be on a thesis panel with him for a, a, a graduate student doing a landscape architecture agrihood project. Cool. Um, and he said to me, you know, I went in and I said, I got a problem. I don't know what to do. I got this, this fellowship, two-year fellowship grant. I got to commit 30 hours a week, but I'm a full-time student. I'm running this farm. Like, I don't really want to drop out of school again, but like, I don't want to say no to this grant. It's like, you know, it's a $60,000 grant and like all this nonprofit um, training. So all these retreats and consultants. And he was like, no, no, you have to take the grant. There's no doubt about it. He's like, you can always come back to school. And so I was kind of like, wow, okay. And then he cleared his desk and showed me a map of Serenby. And he said, you know, there's this community getting started. This was 2001, 2000. He wow. said, you know, you should really go down there. They need you. They need someone like you to help them start the farm. He talked about hamlets, transfer of development rights, TDRs, conservation community stuff. And that was all kind of new to me. Okay. And anyway, so I ended up at Serenby. Um, that seems to be a pattern. Ended up at Serenby because <laughs> I just ended up at Serenby again 20 years later. But uh, so I started the farm at Serenby in 2001. And that really launched this whole kind of idea of like, okay, now I get to bring the farm to the people, put the farm in the middle of community, build community around the farm. I've been doing that in other places since I left Serenby in 05 until now when I just came back and moved here with my family. It's a long story, but here we are. And now I'm um, living in the community <laughs> that is vibrant and everything that it kind of dreamed to be. Um, and uh, it's still growing and evolving. But yeah. It's pretty amazing. I was on their website yesterday um, looking around. I saw a bunch of lots for sale. If, if people are not aware of Serenby, S-E-R-E-N-B-E in uh, Georgia near Atlanta, it's uh, this incredible community and agrihood development that uh, obviously Darren had a huge hand in. And I, I want to talk about how those developments go in your experience. Um, I've seen just a little bit of it in my short term in my short time practicing landscape architecture and it occurs to me that they're not all created equally and that sometimes the the farm is uh an amenity the same way that a swimming pool is <laughs> to some people and sometimes it's it's really a holistic endeavor like it seems to be at Serenby how did that start out and and how did that project um change as you got involved with it yeah well thanks to the success of Serenby, um there's background noise here because uh, as i look out my window there's a bunch of construction on about a dozen homes on the block next to me so <laughs> i can't um, hear it okay good well if you hear some beep 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 that's the reversing um excavator <laughs> well, um, great <laughs> Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, since COVID too, I mean, Serenby has been, been, you know, growing kind of slowly, like a good, you know, slow food, slow community should. 
but it's also suddenly kind of I think uh, exploded since COVID because um, with just virtual work and people reevaluating what's important, these kinds of communities are uh, seeing exponential growth right now, yeah. um, which is which has been great. Um, you know, it, you're right. Not all agri-hoods are created equal. And in fact, in some ways, there's not even really been until recently a, a, even a definition around what an agri-hood is and still very loose. Um, some of the work that I did with the Urban Land Institute in uh, co-authoring the agri-hoods cultivating best practices report uh, a few years ago was really aimed at trying to better define what are the best practices for an agri-hood. Um, I'm currently working on a book, actually, with my with my one of my main collaborators, Greg Ramsey, of Village Habitat Design. He and I have been working together for 20 years. We we worked on Serenby in the Chattahoochee Hill Country together, and have been working on dozens of projects since. Um, and we're we're working on a book specifically about um, conservation agricultural communities. You know, to really understand. To your point, Serenby is a good example because mm-hmm. it's a conservation community. Um, it's not a subdivision with a farm. There's nothing wrong with a subdivision with a farm. I think if you're going to build a subdivision, you should put a farm in. Um, but we shouldn't really be building subdivisions. You know, I think if we're going to grow, um, you know, in a way that's more, that's healthier for for the people and the quality of life, but also healthier for the ecosystems and the land, then we should be focusing on conservation-oriented development. And there's a lot of, um, there's, you know, Randall Arendt is an important figure in this movement, having written Rural by Design and kind of establishing certain metrics for what conservation subdivisions are and um, moving us in the direction. Uh, my partner, Greg's father, um, was a, George Ramsey, was a real pioneer in the 70s. Uh, he was a professor at Georgia Tech promoting the idea of village development, looking at models in Europe mainly in France, um, you know, before the car, we people would build villages that were pedestrian and connected, not just physically to the to the agricultural, um, to the countryside adjacent, but but um, connected through the way that food moved from the from the from the rural areas into the village. Mm. Right. And so so I'm really passionate about development in a as a tool for one, providing housing, because we have a huge housing crisis in this country, especially affordable, accessible housing, but doing it in a way that can actually help conserve land. I know that sounds kind of like a paradox or whatever, but development done in the right way can actually help enable the conservation of land close to where people are, where the people can enjoy it and get the benefit of a, I I took a sunrise walk out into the forest this morning I didn't have to walk very far, you know, mm-hmm. 100 feet. I was in a beautiful spot in the woods. Um, and not just a little chunk of woods, a big chunk of woods, you know, where like deer and squirrels and birds were just thriving. And, you know, for for health and wellness, to be able to have access to nature and to be able to have our farms growing healthy food right around where we live is a huge um benefit both to people and the planet so so yeah so there's a lot of different agri-hoods out there there's a lot of examples i've worked on a bunch some of them um you know more inspiring than others um more moving in this direction of kind of what the ideal from from our perspective is 
yeah. from a conservation, um, the type of agriculture, um, the way the community is connected and integrated with that agriculture. There's a there's a there's a, a pretty broad spectrum, right, of how that can get done, and it's not a. Um, there are some principles and practices I think that that are important to. Um, to kind of lead the 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 how these communities get designed, but there's also um, there's also a lot of different ways. You know, like like you had mentioned. I mean, I've done I've been working on projects from you know Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, the Carolinas, New Jersey, um, Pennsylvania, the Iowa, um, Washington. Um, you uh -huh. know, Northern I California, saw. Southern California, Texas, um, you know, Nevada, <laughs> you know, we're talking about what's nice is this is this and in Baja, Mexico. I mean, yeah. th these are, you know, look, the, the reality is, you know, to sum it up a little bit, I think the reality is, is that development traditionally has pushed out from cities, right? It's just pushed, it just sprawls. And the land closest to where people are becomes more and more expensive because of its development value and the agricultural and biodiversity value of a forest and a farm farmland is not factored in uh, you know the proximity of that and the preciousness of that green belts farm belts greenways you know these kinds of preserving rural character and and having local food and and the only way to really do that well is to build villages, to build density, right? Okay. To put people a little closer together, not just sprawl everything out. And it just so happens, not only is that really good for the environment, but actually ends up creating community. I don't know how you grew up, you know, but I, I grew up in a suburb where you didn't know your neighbors really. I mean, the one benefit is you would run around the woods with kids and come home and it was dark, but, yeah. you know, cause there wasn't that, the, but, but the reality is like, you didn't know people cause there was no common space. There was no, there was no community. You know, and, you know, living in Serenby now, there's so much community, you know, the kids and the families are all hanging out in the green every day. You know, you see people on the trails, you see them at the farmer's market. It's so much easier to build relationships and, and we never get in our car. Yeah, I guess that was one of the things I wanted to talk about is, uh, and I'm glad that you're back at Serenby. That sounds amazing. Um, how involved is the, the larger community there? in the farm operations is it uh you know if you, for your average resident um yeah what do they get yeah no it's a good question and i think you know it, it it's um it's been a bit of a moving target here i think from you know I, i've been gone for a long time so I'm, I'm coming back after i left here in 2005 <laughs> right so wow. it's been 15 years 16 years and it's been through a few farmers. It's been through, I think, I think they're on their fourth farmer since I left. You know, just over 15 years isn't terrible, but um, but the, 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 the farm at Serenby is on a, there's a, there's a level of engagement, um, you know, especially pre-COVID, there was a different level of community engagement. Um, there's a high, higher level of, I think, involvement in the food and in, in purchasing the CSA and, and attending the farmer's market. That's going up as a result of COVID. The social interaction has gone down. But I think what's, what is encouraging, I've just been building a relationship with the new farmer here, Ian, 
And he, you know, a lot of it ends up, there's a couple of things that influence how engaged the community are, right? One is how it's designed, um, how it's operated, and the kind of farmer or farm team that runs it. You okay. know, and if it's, right, because it's, 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 I talk about kind of the hardware and the software. So like we design farms, right? So like, you got to design it so that it's in a place and it's oriented in a way and it's programmed in a way that's going to engage community. It's got to be an intent, intent in it. Right. And it's got to be well designed for it. Well, that's great. Right. But if you don't have the right operator and culture, then it does, it's not going to happen. So the software piece of it to me is, okay, now how do we program it in a way and how do we relate to people and invite people and engage people in lots of ways, volunteers and tours and kids programs and, you know, events on the farm and, um, people being able to have their own plots on the farm and, you know, all kinds of ways that the farm can be a, a community building a community engagement platform. Um, I think what I'm encouraged about here is that, um, and it's nice to be back here um, and getting involved. My, my kid, it's funny, my, my, my son is doing a uh, entrepreneurship um, business for his school and his business that he came up with with his partner is TNT's vegetable stand <laughs> and they want to grow their own food and sell it, which is amazing. So they're going to go yeah. start a little, that's awesome. You know, a plot on the farm. So, you know, I went to Ian and said, Hey, you know, to farmer Ian, you know, my son wants to start a garden. Would you be willing to lease him a little piece of the farm and help him out a little bit? And he was like, absolutely. You know, let's do it. And then I said, you know, maybe this is a pilot for like a little kid's farm at Serenby, right. Where kids and families can come and have their own plot. And like we can run a, a program around that yeah. and, and empower the kids to run their own businesses and learn about growing food and become citizen farmers. Um, I love it. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's in the, it's in the people, right. And mostly. So you're getting back to your roots um, and the Jewish faith and the presence of uh, community agriculture. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, Judaism is um, deeply rooted in agriculture. If you go back and look at um, the Jewish calendar, the, the calendar year and the holidays, as an example, there's a, a whole rhythm of the year that revolves around the moon, the planting cycles, the harvest cycles, and the festivals that are tied to those rhythms, right? So there's a bunch of Jewish agricultural holidays um, Sukkot is a harvest holiday. Mm -hmm. Tu is the birthday for the trees. Um, Shavuos is a, a holiday about harvesting the wheat and, and dairy. There's, there's a bunch of them. And then deeper, if you go deeper into the Jewish agricultural tenets, um, the, there are all these, um, kind of guidelines for how to farm. And one of them, for example, is called Shemitah which is the sabbatical year for the land. You know, every seven years, you are supposed to let the land rest fallow mm. for a year. You know, if you're, if you're a regenerative farmer, you know why that makes sense, right? Like, you know why you let land rest and cover crop and re regenerate. And so that's a thousands year old tradition wow. in Jewish farming. Um, there's, a, there's, there's also a, a deeper layer to that where every seventh cycle of the Shemitah year is the Yovel, which is the year, the Jubilee year, which is when not only do you let the land rest, but you return the land back to its owners. So there's, and you annul debts. 
Okay. So there's there's this you know powerful concept that like you know if you if you become very wealthy and acquire all this land, um, and uh, people who lose their land and the, you know, they get they get they get some land they get the they get the right to that land back. It's like a way to kind of put some checks and balances and you know people having um, access and and ownership and equity, right? Which is a big issue these days. I mean you can't. Farmers can't afford to have equity in, in land anymore that's become completely overpriced because people from the cities are buying up all the nice farmland near the cities for their estates and getaways and suburbs. So this was a pretty profound concept that was, you know, thousands of years old. There's, there's a bunch of them. There's, um, there's a bunch of different really interesting Jewish agricultural, they're really not agricultural, they're just Jewish kind of tenets and principles yep. that happened we were farming so like how do you share the harvest you share you, you know yeah it you... just makes sense and i think there's there's some really encouraging trends um of people looking for that lost cultural knowledge of land management um that we're seeing more and more that's one of the mm. things that i'm interested in, in actively looking for people who are digging up native american knowledge etc because that's so fascinating when it's when it's completely interwoven into the belief systems and the entire cosmology of a group um, that has no choice but to make sense of natural cycles. So I want to talk about how, how those belief systems, how that maybe works with and sometimes clashes with uh, biodynamics, which you're an, an adherent or uh, a practitioner of. Um, are there conflicts or generally do biodynamics and Judaism seem to work together? No, it's, it's a, a, for, for decades, I've been, um, like marinating on the similarities. Actually, there's, um, a lot of the mysticism in biodynamics is very aligned with the, the mysticism in, in Judaism. And, you know, there's these forces at play. There's biodynamics in Jewish agriculture, both kind of spiritual approaches to farming. Right. Um, in biodynamics, you know, there's a certain, um, well, for one, th there's a, there's not, it's not just about a farm, you know, Steiner talks about the social and economic realm and, and talks a lot about the farm, this threefold kind of approach that, and I, what I always loved about biodynamics and something that I resonate with deeply in community farming is the, the social aspect. The farm is kind of this like, so the heart of a social organism is the heart of a community, right? And biodynamics taps into that. And so does Judaism. I mean, Judaism is very much about like, there's a concept of opening um, your fields during the Shemitah year to the, to the community, leaving the corners of your fields for the stranger and the poor to come and harvest. There's a, there's an element of like community and of, and an element of sacred kind of connection, kind of like a, in how you take care of the land. Mm. Um, and, that relation, there's something in the relationship between people and land that, you know, in every religion, there's a, there's an element of, of that kind of deeper caring stewardship, you know, in Judaism, it's like a Shomrei Adama, we're a guardian, we were put in the garden of Eden to kind of till and to tend to be guardians of the earth. We have this role that we're supposed to play um, in, in, in Hebrew. Uh, man and land and as the same word adam and adama mm. 
there's like there's no separation right and um yeah homo you know, and, and it, homo sapiens comes from humus or earth as I well mean, we, we are the earth right and we go back to it i mean we are so we've, we've become so disconnected and in, at Serenby, it's cool that this, this place was designed with the principles of biophilia, which are the same thing. It's like there is no connection. There is no disconnection between people and 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 planet. It's just that we've created all these ways to separate. Um, and so how do you how do you cultivate that connection to rekindle those relationships that are inherent and um, yeah. So anyway, so I, th I think there's an element of that in both biodynamics and in kind of Jewish agriculture, social and spiritual. Yeah, it's it's really clear that um, philosophy and theory are strong in your practice and in your life when reading the book, which I want to talk about a little bit more. The book, which is called Citizen Farmer, Citizen Farmers, Farmers plural, sorry, mm -hmm. I'm looking at it right okay. now. Um, and I've, I've gone through it. It's a great read. One of the things that struck me is you kind of bounce in and out of a, it, it's half guidebook, half theory. How do you want this book to be used? You know, because you've got step-by-step -step instructions and then you've kind of got um, your, your thoughts and your philosophy of compost, um, which is yeah. really fun to read, but I'm just wondering, you know, how do you want people to read this and use it? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, originally the, the original intent of the book and the reason why it's called citizen farmers and not citizen farmer <laughs> is that it's about a movement. It's about that we're, we're all farming by proxy, right? We, we all have this, both this kind of societal relationship by what we choose to buy every day, what we eat, what we put on our body, what we use to wash our dishes and our clothes. And, you know, everything that we do is directly tied to the land and farming, you know, so we make decisions every day that impact the earth and farmers. Um, and so we are farming by proxy. We have a huge impact. We don't even realize it. The other, the other, so it's a call to action, right? People should be more aware of that and make decisions based on, um, on that. The other piece of it is around this connection to growing something, right? Just rekindling that, that biophilia that we talked about, like how powerful it is just to grow something. You know, for me, it, you know, it started with a garden in college and it turned into, you know, a career in farming. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, I, I just really want to encourage people to grow something, right? And and have develop, cultivate that relationship, you know, rekindle that connection to, to nature and to agriculture and to all the things that are behind that, the rhythms and the seasons and the soil and the birds and the worms and everything else. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other piece is around growing ourselves in the garden, right? Like, it's also about like, how do we cultivate our own, um, you know, it all starts with ourselves. Like if we're not really taking care of ourselves, it's hard to be in service to the world. So like, how do we really take care of ourselves? And I think the garden is a wonderful place and a wonderful metaphor for that. And so it's really about growing yourself in the garden. Um, so, you know, originally the book was kind of a why, it was going to be a little bit more of a why to than a how to. Um, and it it you mostly thanks to the publisher and the editors it was a lot of the philosophy and stories were edited down and the practical kind of turned up and so it became a little more heavy on the the how-to than um which i think is fine i mean i don't have any regrets around it um 
but yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm, I come from kind of a deeper philosophical place and in, in my relationship to growing food and growing community and, and, and stewarding land. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, yeah, I want the book to be used in a, as a, as a, as an inspiration to get in, to be inspired to do more and realize that we have this power as citizen farmers. Um, I want it to be a, a platform for connecting citizen farmers together because whether that's for advocacy at a national level or for just getting to know your neighbors on a local level. And I want it to be, um, I, I want it to be a, um, a, a tool in the toolkit that you can turn to, to help, you know, have a, a more success in your garden, honestly, you know, yeah. on your farm. I think it succeeds in, in all those things. I mean, it was really a fun read in terms of, I'm not actively gardening at the moment. I'm living in an apartment, um, but I grew up farming uh, in viticulture here in, in central Texas. And um, even though I, I wasn't necessarily following the step-by-step parts, um, I I love reading about the, the why to parts of the book. So I would encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Citizen Farmers, plural, You've also got your consulting business. We talked about um, consulting agrihood developments. You're doing lots of public speaking. Uh, what else do you have going on? Well, I too launched a podcast. Oh, um, yep, Citizen, yep. Citizen Farmers podcast. Um, the first season is really kind of going through the book and adding a little bit of the philosophy that got edited out <laughs> <laughs> um, and and kind of just digging a little deeper into it. And then the the second season, which recently launched, is called Reimagining Communities, and it's more interviews, um, conversations with thought leaders in in the industry, um, like Steve Nygren, who founded Serum B, and um, some of my team that I work closely with on a regular basis, and people that, you know, really highlighting citizen farmers, inspiring people who are doing amazing work um, in this kind of area around of conservation regenerative agriculture and community development. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot that falls into all three of those buckets, but when they're all kind of thinking about them woven together. Um, yeah, that's, and then I've got three kids and they keep me busy, man. Um, eight, seven and three year old and a wife. Oh my gosh. And, um, so I'm, I, I try to be, you know, as present for family as I can. I'm, I'm a bit of, you know, when you're a, serial social entrepreneur or entrepreneur um you know you never kind of put the pencil down and so it's hard um i and i I have this like you know look we're we're, we're looking at this like um i spent some time with paul hawken recently and he talked about like climate change as this like car speeding towards a cliff you know and i think there's just this reality that we're in right now that you know, we not only do we need to slow this thing down, but we need to like stop it and turn it around and go in the other direction. And so I feel very um, motivated um, call to action to, and I do, I do believe that, you know, one of the ways that we can start to slow the car down and turn it around is changing the way that we think about community, changing the way we design our cities and our, our, are um, the, the rural city communities, towns and villages and the way we steward land, you know, yeah. the way we, the way we steward land is huge. Um, I mean, we talk about carbon sequestration. We could talk about, you know, 
shifting agriculture to be more regenerative and less chemical heavy and fossil fuel heavy. We can also talk about, you know, improving the health of our citizens the, and access, just access to food, good food and um, healthier communities to live in socially and environmentally healthier communities. And we have these just dying rural towns all over this country that are just, um, that, that need to be, uh, you know, cultivated into to vibrant places that are filled with life um, and opportunity and community. So, you know, I feel like there's a life, there's, there's a, there's maybe one lifetime of work left right now. <laughs> and it's the most, maybe the most important one. And I think the work that, that, that we're doing is, is, is the work that needs to be done. I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to get done, but yeah, I feel, um, you know, inspired and hopeful that there are some solutions. There's some things and that those solutions represent opportunities, you know? Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, what's great about the, the digital age we're living in is that people like you can get out and share this information and talk about the philosophy behind it. Because, um, you know, if you look at anthropology, belief systems are so important to um, you know, societal structure and the decisions we make and revisiting and revising our belief systems is so important. And that's kind of the namesake of this uh, podcast, Land Ethic, based on Aldo Leopold's ideas um, in that regard. And, and you know, we, we have to undergo a cognitive shift and a cultural shift. Um, so I think people like you are doing really important work, and I'm, I'm glad to learn more about it. Um, I just a couple more things I want to talk about, and then I'll let you get back to those three kids. Any any exciting projects coming up? Any any new developments? Uh, anything you want to promote? Um, I mean, I'd say you know the the encouraging thing that I'm seeing right now is there's there's a lot of momentum and a, a shift. There was there was a shift in 2008, right when the economy tanked. And everybody slowed down and when thing, and people started gardening, right? And there was like this whole kind of thing that happened then. And, and when things came, the economy picked back up 2011, 12, like I saw a big uptick in the, the number of communities that were interested, developments and, and landowners and cities and, and, and nonprofits that were interested in really um, investing more in their farm community, farms and, and, and communities around farms. And now got urban farms, gardens, you name it. And I, I'm, I'm seeing this coming out of COVID. I hope I can say we're coming out of it because it looks like we're coming out of it. Yeah. But, you know, there's a there's another big shift. And I think the big shift that I'm seeing is that there's there's a different level. You, you couldn't have forced this kind of shift in culture. You know, it took it took a pandemic, I think, for people to see kind of, you know, laid bare some of the real vulnerabilities and and issues that we have as a country and and around the world yeah and and so and and i think on you know amplified on top of that is so much so many of the the major environmental disasters and you know climate change issues or whatever you want to call them that we're just we're seeing and so there seems to be a nice shift, you know, we'll hope it's, it's fast enough and, and lasts long enough, right. To move some of these old paradigms 
um, that have been really destructive to new paradigms that can be really constructive and regenerative. And so um, I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing a lot more momentum. That's great. I'm seeing a lot, even on the individual and the organizational level, people just seem to be more aware, humble, um, and committed to this kind of work. And that's, that's really encouraging. So yeah, yeah mostly, you know, um, yeah, the podcast, you know, citizenfarmers.org and, and, and for my, my company, farmerd.com, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be working more and more with mission aligned, value aligned um, people and projects that are, um, that are wanting to conserve land and, and promote regenerative farming and local food systems and build vibrant communities that are diverse uh, in income and, and, and the so- social di- uh, mix of people and perspectives. Um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm encouraged. Yeah. And optim- I try to stay optimistic. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I think I'm seeing some of the trends that you are. Maybe um, I have a, the caution comes from, you know, like we touched on earlier, I don't know where people's values are all the time. And um, in architecture and landscape architecture, you see a lot of greenwashing and um, intention, good intention, but um, it doesn't always make its way into the actual work. And so um, I'm really encouraged by what you're doing. Um, last question. This is uh, just out there. What's your What's your favorite place on earth? If you have one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've only traveled to a few places. Um, there's a lot of places that I want to go see. Um, you know, I grew, I'm originally from South Africa. And so oh, growing cool. up, I would go back there a lot. And I always felt very at home in South Africa. Um, there's an energy there that's really powerful. So I love, I love, I love South Africa. It just feels very home. I'd say like most recently, the place I've been enjoying the most going to, I, I had the good fortune of working with Chip Conley down in, in Pescadero in Baja on the Modern Elder Academy. And I was interviewed, I interviewed him on my podcast and we were talking about how it's on the Tropic of Cancer. I'm mm-hmm. a cancer sign. And my late mentor, Hugh, used to tell me, you should really try to live on the Tropic of Cancer. And and I always go down there and I just feel this energy down there. That's just so good. And it's like, you know, it's beach, sandy beach roads, lots of farming, mountains in the background, ocean. Um, it's, it, there's this really cool kind of culture there. And, you know, there's, there's, it's a magical place down there in Pescadero uh, near Todos Santos. Um, that's one of my favorite places. I'd say that the, the, the challenge with places like that and a lot of my favorite places, you know, we've been looking for like a place to land and live. And we were in Northern California where we loved, but the fires were terrible. Yeah. And it's really expensive. We were out in Vermont and loving Vermont, but like the cost of land is skyrocketing because so many people are moving there. Um, all these, we loved Asheville. We loved, you know, love Asheville, Serenby, where we are. I mean, there's just all these. And the funny thing is, is it's not funny, actually. The sad thing is <laughs> the best places are where everybody wants to be right yeah. and so the money starts to drive that into a a place that only those with a lot of money can be and, and not just i have nothing against people with money it's just that you also end up with 
the farmers, the farms go away, the diversity goes away, the, the, the fabric of what makes that place so special changes. Um, and so I think for, for me, I think there's these, there's so, I, I, there's so many places that I love and, and I can appreciate the uniqueness of places, right? Um, what, I, what I feel like is so important is that to keep those great places great, it's about preserving the land and, and, the, and the ecology and about having diversity in the people, right? And so I think I, that's why I love what, what, what I do. I wanna see these kinds of conservation agricultural communities all over the place. I'd love to be nomadic enough to be able to spend time in Costa Rica and in Northern California and in, in Vermont and, and down here in Georgia, you know, knowing that those places are preserved as, uh, as the, not just the physical place you want to be and the beauty of it, but the cultural um, place that you want to be too. I think you and I are cut from the same cloth. <laughs> uh, with that, I think we'll uh, wrap it up. I know you've got a lot going on, but uh, I really appreciate your time, appreciate your time and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully connecting in the future. Um, you've already plugged everything you've got going on. Everyone check out the book, the website, uh, the podcast, um, I listened to a few episodes of the podcast. It's fantastic. Um, I think I listened to the one with um, the fellow you just mentioned involved in Serenby. What was his name? Steve Nygren. Steve Nygren, mm -hmm. yeah. That was a good episode. Um, well, I'm excited for, uh, for, for your new podcast. Congratulations, and thanks for doing this. And uh, thanks for interviewing me. I'm looking forward to uh, getting to know you more and um, listening to your podcast. <laughs> Likewise, appreciate it. All right, Darren. Farmer D., that let's let's wrap it up all right thanks so much